Hello, Duncan Green here with a roundup of the uh, From Poverty to Power blog for the week beginning the 21st of January. Um, first thing to report, we're nearly there. We're just appointing someone who is going to source a whole load of new content, both in terms of the format, so more podcasts, more video, more kind of conversations, and the uh, providers trying to get um, content from around the global south. So very exciting. We're in the middle of appointing puffs of smoke should go up next week and it's all going to be really exciting for this year on back to the blog so on monday um oxfam released its annual davos report so when the masters of the universe fly jet into davos in switzerland for their big annual world economic forum meeting we publish uh, a report or reports uh, and the last few years we've done i think incredibly well in terms of getting attention on the issues of inequality uh, this year was a bit different. We did the killer fact. So we found that the richest 26 individuals in the world have the same wealth as the poorest 3.8 billion. So that's the poorest half of the world's population. And that's down from 43, 26, down from 43 last year. Um, but the actual report was interesting. So on Monday, I wrote about the kind of report we've done, which is much more about infographics, much more sort of tweetable, much more a sort of compendium of things that people can uh, exchange, dive into, cut and select and paste and send. Um, and it's a bit of a contrast to what um, the traditional uh, NGO report, which someone once described as bad shit, facty, facty, which is that you say something's really terrible and here's loads and loads of facts and it's 100 pages and no one reads it. So this was a kind of new attempt. And I like the underlying premise, which was it would try to be much more propositional than the typical um, report on inequality and and basically came up with something which looks and sounds like a feminist global welfare system really taking seriously things like the unpaid and care economy um, and the good news is it seems to have worked because this report has had record downloads compared to uh, previous reports so it's getting out there people are reading it and i think it's really good so do have a look at the davos report tuesday we doubled down max lawson who was one of the authors of the of the report uh, wrote his take on the message for davos and he came up with this very sort of clear framing which is imagine having 25 more years in your life as the prize 24 years 25 more years where you can do things when you can spend time with your family do whatever you want because that is what is at stake because the difference in life expectancy between people at the bottom of the pyramid and people at the top is up to 25 years. And he uses that as the basis for arguing, making the case for decent and universal public services. And one of the interesting things that jumped out to me from that blog was the huge variation. So in some countries like Thailand and Rwanda, there really isn't much difference between people how people at the top and people at the bottom fare in things like maternal mortality or, 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 or and other health indicators. In other countries like Ghana and Indonesia, there is a huge gulf between the rich and the poor. So if there's that much variation, then there's things we can learn about why things work in some places and not in others. You know, that means it's interesting. And that was a good, that was a piece from Max. On Wednesday... Uh, I reviewed another new paper from Oxfam. This one is a study by Ruth Main and a bunch of her colleagues. Looking back over 75 years of Oxfam's influencing efforts, so this is how has Oxfam tried to influence the wider system, the government, the policies, the private sector, rather than just deliver programs on the ground. And I think there were a couple of really useful things I pulled out of that. One is a really handy chronology of the different 
phases, the different ways we've thought about influencing all the way from 1942 through to the present. Some great case studies of the things that have worked, different different attempts to influence, and then a sort of st- uh, some thinking about the the choices we now face. And I think, yeah, the kind of that she, uh, the, the authors um, highlight three potential choices. One is we stay big. You want a big international NGO that can tackle big global problems like climate change or tax evasion. One is we downsize. We spin off loads of new organizations who can be much more agile and flexible and work at national level. And the third one is we actually step out and think more of ourselves as a hub, a platform, a place where people can exchange ideas. And it's not all about us. It's much more about facilitation. All of those three have strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's a a kind of useful way to frame it. On Thursday, a colleague at LSE sent me a really interesting post from uh, Christoph Titeka at the University of Antwerp. Uh, Christoph's an anthropologist who testified at the trial of Dominic Ongwen, who was one of the commanders of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, the infamous uh, armed group that's led by Joseph Kony. Um, And as an anthropologist, uh, Christoph was talking about the use, the importance of spirits and how people like Ongwen, who was one of uh, Kony's senior commanders, essentially felt they had no choice but to follow orders because of the power of the spirits commanded by Joseph Kony. And the the piece is really um, fascinating because it's like when you go in with an anthropological take on the spirit world and try and explain it to a bunch of um, rationalist lawyers in the International Criminal Court, they do not compute. It doesn't work. And he talks about the sort of the, the, the failure of the courts to understand or even you know, to get their heads around this other world of which it's oblivious. And then Friday, um, I wrote up a, a brainstorm I attended earlier in the week of uh, a research consortium led by IDS, which Oxfam is part of, called Action for Empowerment and Accountability. And this was one of those treats. You know, you, you, we've been going for two years, phenomenal amounts of papers being written and blogs and lots of products. And now this was an attempt to try and say, OK, so what does it all add up to? What's our overarching narrative? What, what have we found? And the thing which struck me was that we need to, especially in fragile and conflict-affected places, which is what this project's about, you have to go further back into what's going on in people's heads before you can start talking about activism and politics and organisation. There's this swirling cloud of fear and love and rage and trust and hope which shapes people's lives and their actions and the way they see each other and the world, and which we kind of don't look at usually in the aid and development business you tend to just assume people are essentially rational actors who will do things if they think they're in their self-interest rather than traumatized individuals or people who uh, resigned and you know fatalist or whatever the other feelings that that prevent action are and so what we got talking about at IDS was that you know what you're essentially talking about is a kind of moral and emotional enabling environment for action and that we need to think much more about how do you get ri- how do you deal with fear how do you shift social norms this soft stuff is actually absolutely crucial to whether you'll get change on the ground and in a way uh, i reflected back on a paper i wrote a couple of years ago for the for the project arguing that you know the two theories of change i was seeing in the donors were do more in these situations so do lots more political economy analysis do lots more fine-grained adaptive management think on your feet learn by doing try lots of things and then there's another current of thinking especially at the world bank which says this is ridiculous you're never going to know enough to actually be effective in these very very messy violent places so do less 
do property rights, do access to information, do broad, access to broadband, and then just leave it up to local players to come up with ideas and make things happen. What we were talking about at IDS was in a way a third option, which is a much broader understanding of what the enabling environment for empowerment and accountability is, and then thinking what this means for outsiders, whether they are donors or organizations like Oxfam. So I think there's something to pursue there in terms of what is this broader understanding of an enabling environment. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you next week.